From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Homeland Security Department's finalizing new hiring and pay structures for cyber professionals. DHS's Chief Information Officer Karen Evans says the framework will let the agency pay cyber talent what they could make in the private sector. FCW reports DHS's Chief Human Capital Officer Angela Bailey says the talent management system framework should appear in the Federal Register for comments by late spring. Five startups will get money from the Homeland Security Department to develop technology based on blockchain. The Phase 1 awards from DHS's Science and Technology Directorate include applications to control counterfeiting and forgery. GCN reports the Directorate's Silicon Valley Innovation Program oversaw the awards. The Air Force has updated the software on an aircraft in flight for the first time. A U-2 Dragon Lady assigned to the 9th Reconnaissance Wing at Beale Air Force Base in California was the test aircraft. The Air Force writes the capability will allow pooling of computer, computing power on board aircraft. Agencies may have to implement a new cyber risk management framework under a new bill in the Senate with bipartisan support. The Risk-Informed Spending for Cybersecurity Act would mandate a risk-based budgeting model to cut down on cyber attacks. Chris Kemiski is CEO of Kemiski Strategic Solutions. He's former acting undersecretary at the Department of Homeland Security. Chris, welcome back. It's great to see you. What would agencies have to do to set up this type of risk management framework? Well, thanks, Francis. Uh, well, I think that uh, a lot of them are, are starting to think about this uh, relationship uh, more so between risk and resourcing. And so there is a conversation going on in a lot of the CIO shops and, and CFO organizations talking about how do we do a better job of, of matching risks and resource. And I think that the Senate bill that Senators uh, uh, Portman and Peters are bringing forward is, is something to create that impetus of the conversation. The relationship between risks and resourcing is different than thinking about just risks or thinking about just resourcing how, Chris? Well, I think in the past, you know, the, the departments and agencies have a lot coming at them. And so uh, because there's such a preponderance of legacy systems across the federal government, there's been a, a lot of talk about systems modernization and things of that nature. Uh, but really this notion of how do you take the limited resources that you have and apply them to the, the riskiest areas of, of the cyber landscape uh, that you're contending with has really been an issue that uh, has not received as much attention. And so I think the Senate bill is trying to prompt agencies to really get into that conversation, look at international standards, look at some of the things that are happening across the U.S. in terms of risk and try and apply that more directly uh, to their cyber investments. The potential risk that I see is that this is essentially the Senate saying that something's a good idea should be the law. Agencies shouldn't necessarily wait for the law to happen, should they? It sounds like what you're suggesting is something that just makes a lot of sense and people should do it. I think that's true. They, agencies have really got to get out in front of this. It shouldn't take legislation for uh, the, the, particularly the largest federal agencies uh, to, to take a, a hard examination and apply a framework that makes sense, that's accepted best practices, and then look at their cyber investments and really you know, start to take the resourcing uh, requests that they bring to Congress and have those align more directly. Uh, I think that that's you know, something that OMB could certainly push. Um, many times it takes legislation to, to actually get that conversation jump-started. Where do you see the biggest potential misalignment of risk and resources right now, Chris? 
Well, there are a couple areas. One, I think, is in data, particularly. Uh, there's so much talk about data, um, you know, how to take the, the most protected, you know, personally personally identifiable information, things of that nature, uh, and really start to uh, rank these uh, data sets in terms in terms of, uh, you know, how risky it is, what's the sensitivity, uh, but it's also this notion of what do you, what's it going to take legacy-wise uh, to come into the 21st century with a lot of these systems that weren't designed to handle uh, the cyber protections that are on the uh, the landscape today. Is that the biggest potential gain for an organization is to decide which of their legacy systems are either the most vulnerable, protect the most important stuff, or some combination thereof, and just modernize them? Is that potentially the biggest uh, opportunity? I think that that is part of it. What'll happen is that you'll get an, a rank ordering or you'll have at least a, a prioritization that takes place internally with each of the agencies so that when they go to Congress and they ask for money, that there's a methodical, predictable pathway uh, for them going forward. And they can say, okay, here are the riskiest sets of issues. Let's tackle those first. And then you really get the, the resources on target. So when the resources are available, uh, there's never going to be enough resource to meet all of the needs. Is there then a separate risk management framework or, or thought that you apply to the resources that you get? Do you devote 100% of the money to the top three things or 70% of the money to the top eight things? Or does that just, is, is that all more, or more art than science? Well, I think you'll get uh, additional guidance from OMB and certainly the Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency at, at DHS, uh, which has been given more uh, resources and more uh, policy responsibilities, as you know, across the federal space. And so I think the agencies will get the guidance that they need uh, to start to then parse, you know, this, okay, for the next fiscal year cycle, this is how we're going to focus our attention. It's on dual factor authentication. It's on, you know, uh, preventing uh, DDoS attacks, whatever the, the set of issues is going to be, uh, there'll be at least a framework in place so that they can target their resources more effectively. Is the risk assessment in a cyber environment different than the risk assessment in some other kind of environment, Chris, or do the same principles apply? No, I think that's a good point. I think that uh, there, a lot of organizations in the private sector have cyber and risk in the same kind of uh, bucket. Uh, and so the, they, they look at risk across these different uh, uh, areas and they say, well, it's, it's all the same kind of issue. Uh, I think there's a little bit different uh, application that can be brought to bear on cyber, uh, but the ge general tenets and principles of risk, uh, I think the agencies should be very familiar with and then apply those as well. And then does do should we think about cyber risk separately from other types of risks that an agency should uh, be thinking about, or should these all be included in one big bucket? Well, I think that there are some, some unique areas, uh, you know, whether it's a ransomware attack or things of that nature, there are risk factors that uh, other areas of risk don't necessarily see. Uh, so I think that there is going to have to be some recognition that cyber does bring a different set of issues at times, uh, but the basic principles I think uh, that underlie uh, can be applied. Chris, thanks very much. It's great to see you again. Thanks, Francis. Up next, a new bill could send you back to your home office until the end of the virus. Straight ahead on Government Matters is maximum teleworking government. Here to stay, you're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Federal employees back in the office could go back to maximum telework under a new bill in the Senate. The pandemic federal telework act 
would keep as many employees as possible working from home until the Department of Health and Human Services declares the pandemic is over. Jonathan Albums, principal data strategist at ServiceNow. He's former chief information officer at the Agriculture Department. Jonathan, welcome back. It's good to see you. What does this Thank act you. say to you about what's possible for agencies across government? Well, you know, I think at first, first thing it says is that we're thinking about the safety and protection of our federal employees first and foremost. Um, we have to think about people and not places. You know, work is something you do. It's not necessarily something that you uh, go to an office to do. It's not where you are. It's a thing, right? It's it's creating uh, value and it's delivering on a mission. And this bill tells me that uh, there's a rec uh, recognition that that value can be created from anywhere. Uh, and we're proving that across our agencies that have been teleworking for you know upwards of six months at this point. An agency chief information officer told me the other day, I the employees that were productive in the office are productive at home, and the employees that weren't productive in the office aren't productive at home. Is that does that fit with what you're seeing as you talk to CIOs across government? Yeah, it really does. The um, the reality is that uh, those those of us who um, have managed teams before have uh, recognized the need to be able to manage effectively whether people are in the office or they are working from home because it's about having a strong relationship with your employees and making sure that there's a clear understanding of what the work is and what the tools are to to complete that work and again i think that we're proving by and large that across government uh, we have telework tools in place to make sure that people are able to do their jobs i think you know the challenge for some might be do we have the right tools in place to del always deliver on the mission you know, in, in a lot of instances, we still have uh, some very manual processes. And I think, again, we're recognizing that telework is more than just um, connectivity into systems. It's having uh, digitized workflows and, um, you know, digitally transformed processes. So the work really can be done anywhere without a um, degradation in uh, performance or um, uh, degradation in service to, to the people that rely on our agencies. The sense that I got, Jonathan, when this all started was that a lot of folks thought, okay, we have to transition to maximum remote work in a matter of 24 to 48 hours. Some agencies, it took as long as a week to really get up and running. But I think folks thought, all right, this is a three-month process maybe, and by summer, right. we'll be back to the office. Summer came and went, fall's here, winter's coming. Nobody's anticipating going back to the office en masse anytime soon. What does this look, forget about the legislation, what does this look like moving forward and what do agencies need to think about in the next maybe three to six weeks to think about what if this lasts till next summer? What if people decide, hey, I'm either going to keep working from home or retire and agencies go, maybe we want to keep these people and let them continue to work remotely. What does all of that look like in your view? So I think there are two pieces to that. Uh, one, you know, you have to think about the future of work. And the future of work is going to be hybrid. We're in this telework mode now, and I think you're right. It's going to last for a period of time. But um, it, it's inevitable, in my opinion, that there will be some kind of hybrid uh, setup for most organizations, public and private, where people are teleworking uh, with maybe a greater frequency than before, but there are also people in the office. So for a or what in my opinion, what agencies need to be doing is they need to make sure that they have the right tools in place to continue maximum telework for as long as possible. So that means having the right networks in place and software and hardware and having a, a robust 
uh, hardware asset management program, software asset management program, so that all these technologies they acquired, as you, you described, can be properly managed. But at the same time, I think agencies need to be preparing for the eventual day when employees do come back into the office and they should be thinking about um, how to make sure that their workplaces are safe. And, uh, you know, on the House side, there's a separate piece of legislation that recently passed, the Remembrance Act, you know, that's focused on making sure agencies have plans and that they can provide PPE to their employees, they can perform health screenings and understand their employees' uh, needs as part of that return. I think if you're you're focusing on today, but you have an eye towards tomorrow, and that tomorrow will include some kind of safe return into the workplace, agencies are going to be better positioned as the environment continues to change. So what does the combination look like strategically, Jonathan, of that safe return to work, safe continuation of work when people do come back, and that hybrid environment? What do the infrastructure uh, strategies look like, do you think? What do the investments need to be? That kind of thing to support this hybrid model that we're thinking about. I mean, we're, we're thinking about 2022 and 2025. Yeah, I, I think it, in some cases, it is initially harder, right? Because you're maintaining a robust digital infrastructure and a physical infrastructure. Right now, agencies are not moving to uh, shed themselves of office space or real estate. But I think that, you know, potentially that's something that could, could come out of this and we could have streamlined uh, approaches to where employees come into an office. Um, we have more space than we need in some cases. And, you know, we already had this move previously where we tried to do hoteling, some other things, and maybe we have, uh, you know, that comes back um, as we start thinking about uh, ways to pair costs. But really, I think that the, um, the most important part is making sure that the mission can be delivered under any circumstances. So um, I go back to looking at the looking at the processes that our agencies had to adjust and innovate on very quickly when the um, pandemic hit, and thinking about how do we optimize those processes now to work in a um, you know, in an entirely digital way. In some cases, we put uh, remote technologies on top of manual processes. Maybe we added video conferencing or digital signatures. Um, but really, it's a, still the same manual process with some digital add-ons that make it possible to operate during this period of time. The future is different, in my opinion. The future is a optimized, fully digital process that operate that operates on the schedule of the of the citizen, of the customer of that agency, and not around the schedule of uh, the agency's operating hours. That value chain is, you know, is completely and dramatically changed in, in the private sector at this point. We can order our groceries when we want. We can shop for uh, books or electronics when we want. We can do things on our own schedule. And I think that's where the government has to shift to over the next several years, that complete and total digitization of key processes in our in our agencies. And that, that would be my uh, longer term focus for, for CIOs out there. Jonathan Album, thanks very much. As always, great to see you. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. Up next, what employees think about the coronavirus response. Straight ahead on Government Matters, new questions in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, and maybe some that should be there that aren't. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back.
Welcome back. The Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey is open. The new set of questions from the Office of Personnel Management includes some about the coronavirus. Mika Cross is a federal workplace expert. Mika, thanks for coming on. It's great to see you again. What's your sense of what the what OPM is asking employees about the coronavirus response and what you expect to see results wise? Yeah, so it's really exciting, first of all, that we're seeing that Fed's actually launched after a few delays this year, um, which should be expected. But in addition to the regular questions that are typically asked on the Feds, we'll see about 20 or so COVID-related questions that will really gauge whether or not people felt connected, supported, had the resources and technology that they needed to achieve the mission in an effective way, and also other impacts to well-being and satisfaction on productivity in the Fed. So I'm really excited to see what this year's results look like overall. It sounds from what you've told me before, like those questions are similar to the questions that OPM asks about employees being in the office. Is that correct? There are some similarities, but there are really specific areas that really assess whether or not people are prepared have they had the right kinds of technology and tools to do their jobs appropriately? And especially in this kind of environment, I think it's incredibly important. I know the results won't be out for a while, Mika, but what should people start thinking about now about how to interpret the data that they get back on coronavirus questions? Well, first of all, this will be really great information to help inform leaders at all levels on what they could be doing differently with regards to communication, connection, and even different kinds of skills like empathy, gratitude. There's a question I saw from one of the agency's FEBS um, surveys that actually asked about what kind of workplace culture areas would you like to cultivate, whether that be generational differences, whether that be competencies and listening. Um, it's a, going to be a really unique time for us to be able to really get a nice baseline on what we did well across the federal space and where there could be improvements really in all environments. You know, not everybody are on extended work from home orders. So this really applies to all full-time and part-time permanent employees that were on the roll since last October. How should organizations use this data when it comes out to think about moving forward? We're not gonna be in the pandemic forever. We're not gonna be in an all hands remote uh, work environment forever. But we keep hearing Jonathan Album a moment ago on the program was talking about expecting to see a hybrid environment forever. And that means, I imagine, a dramatic rethinking about the way that we think about connecting with our employees. Absolutely right, Francis. And, you know, we've been talking for so long around cultivating different sets of competencies for current and future leaders. And this is a really unique opportunity to do that. With the Fed's data that we will have, it will help inform what areas we need to really start focusing on in terms of allowing people to have all kinds of skills to connect and collaborate in any kind of hybrid environment. And there will be opportunities for some employees to continue working full-time remotely, some indefinitely, some long-term and potentially permanent. I think this is going to be a really great opportunity to use the best for what it was intended to do. And this is our 18th year of assessing the workforce. We've never been through a global pandemic like this. So, yeah. Some of the broad themes that you and I have talked about over the years in the FEVs, engagement and so on, um, the, the leadership perspective that employees get from the people that lead them, from their managers. 
Will that stuff look different, do you think, as a result of this, or is it is really just the location of where employees are doing their jobs different in that dynamic, Mika? I think in some respects we'll have to wait and see, but I'm excited to see how the impact of working this way has had an effect on, on leaders and how they're connecting with their folks. So I'm hearing really great stories from across federal agencies of leaders who are cultivating, you know, mental health and wellness and well-being activities as a team, um, checking in with employees more frequently on a one-on-one -on -one basis in a variety of ways. So not adding to the to the Zoom exhaustion um, and Zoom fatigue, but actually offering things like walking telephone meetings and team meetings where they're coming together to actually learn and support one another in different ways. So I, I think it's gonna look really different. Um, I have my own thoughts, but I, I don't wanna put them out there until we get the data back necessarily. All right, about 30 seconds left. I won't ask you for a prediction then, Mika, but what do you expect to see happen results-wise? You expect to see more engagement with just actually taking the survey, uh, higher response rate, lower response rate, or about tracking about what we've seen? I'm thinking higher response rate. I'm thinking we'll have a lot of information about how people had the right tools or not um, throughout the pandemic in order to get the job done and how they were led in this really uncertain environment and the areas where we can really improve upon. So there'll be some of the same from the last surveys in the past years, but a lot of different and really interesting data for us to parse through. I can't wait to talk about it more when we get the results, Francis. Mika Cross, I apologize for asking you to make a prediction or saying I wouldn't and then asking you to make one. It's great to see you. <laughs> Great to see you as always. If you've missed the show or you're on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is available now as an audio podcast. You get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or just ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.